so many other things in life that we could put our trust in, our own abilities, our comforts, our careers. We know all of them are shifting sand. The only place where we find true rest is in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning. My name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. It brings me joy to bring you God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go and grab it and open it to Mark chapter 1. To Mark chapter 1. We've been going through this book every time I've preached. In, in the two sermons I preached in Mark so far, we, we talked about how Mark establishes who Jesus is, fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and, and about his declaration uh, that the kingdom of God has come near to repent and to believe the good news. Now, uh, as we look at verses 21 through 45, we see Jesus beginning to act uh, in, in this gospel. And we see what, what comes when Jesus arrives into the earth. So I'll be reading verses 1 to 40, uh, 21 to 45. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45. If this is the first time you've used the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Going to read all the way to, to verse 45. I'll be reading from the Standard Bible. It's not too different from a translation that you have. It says this. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at him because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And this unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed. So they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun set, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there to you. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. 
Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest, and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would incline our ears to listen to your word, to not just hear with our ears, but to see with our hearts your glory in this passage. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the past two sermons, we saw Jesus being introduced, and he pronounces that the kingdom of God had finally come near. Now we get to see Jesus in action. And what we see is that as Jesus acts, he provides four things for us to think about this morning. So the main idea for us is to believe in Jesus, who makes all things new, who makes all things new. As Jesus comes in as this new king, bringing the new creation, he brings four things. Number one, he brings a new authority, a new authority. Number two, he brings a new condition, a new condition. Number three, he brings a new priority, a new priority. And number four, he brings a new hope, a new hope, a new authority, a new condition, a new priority, a new hope. Let's look at point number one, a new authority, as we read verses 21 and 22 again. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. And they were astonished as teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. After Jesus calls his disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, he enters into Capernaum and, and begins to teach in the synagogue. Matthew uh, tells the same story. He says that it happens on the Sabbath when Hebrews wouldn't be working and they often go into the synagogue to hear teaching from God's word. Except this Sabbath... There's a new rabbi, and the people were astonished at his teaching. But the reason why they're astonished isn't because of what Jesus is teaching. Here, Mark doesn't detail any of the words that Jesus said, but how Jesus teaches. How he teaches. Jesus teaches as one who has authority, not like the scribes. See, what makes Jesus stand out isn't dynamic speaking or vivid illustrations or, or killer jokes, but that his words carried weight. He spoke with authority. Uh, that Jesus isn't just another teacher. He's the one that the other teachers have been talking about. See, scribes have to take time to describe what they see, to explain what people think. They're probably well-read academics with doctorate degrees who made a life of their knowledge. But at the end of the day, the things that they said were derivative. Their points came from someone else. It comes from outside of themselves. In other words, in order to prove that the scribes had something worth saying, they would cite their sources. 
You'll talk about how so-and-so said this or, or so-and-so said that. No intellectually honest scribe can say, you should listen to me because I said so. But Jesus doesn't need to cite his sources. He speaks for himself. You've heard it said this, but I say to you something different. When, when Jesus speaks, he's not drawing on the logic of Aristotle or on the tradition of Hillel or Shammai or the insight of Plato. Jesus is utterly original, distinct, singular. And Mark is making clear that Jesus isn't like any other teacher that has appeared on this planet. When Jesus speaks, he carries the same authority with his words that cause light to shine from darkness. Who do you listen to? You can feel like nowadays we're more divided than ever. Society is segmenting itself into its tribes, and, and every tribe has its leaders. And arguments with others can kind of feel like you're comparing your lineup of the leaders that you think are right against the leaders that another person thinks is right. But rather than Jesus falling into line, he, he transcends all of those comparisons because of who he is. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he's really the Son of God, then he stands above what anyone else has to say. Whatever Jesus says is right because he's right. Because he is God. And that identity gets confirmed not just in the way that, that Jesus talks, but in what he does. And you can see that in verse 23. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue, and he cried out, what, have, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A demon-possessed man is in the synagogue and cries out to Jesus, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? What do you have to do with us? In other words, this demon is asking Jesus, Leave us alone. And this unclean spirit's been around. We know that sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, the sin, and ever since, evil spirits have been active. This is their realm, their playground. And this demon has lived largely uncontested, unbothered, able to dominate this man's life without any opposition. After all, Ephesians 6.12 says that demons are identified as the rulers of darkness in this world. But then a new king comes into town. And the demon freaks out because he knows who Jesus is. See what, see what the demon calls Jesus there? He calls him the Holy One of God. And that title, Holy One, is used for the only one who is holy. The Holy One of God. In Isaiah, God frequently identifies himself as the Holy One of Israel. And here, the demon identifies Jesus as who he truly is. God himself made flesh. The demon believes that Jesus is God, and he shudders. Jesus' presence triggers this demon's panic. 
And, and for good reason. I mean, look at what Jesus does in verse 25. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsion, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. And they were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Jesus rebukes the demon, and the demon leaves. Now, this exorcism isn't like those exorcisms that you see in horror movies. There's no long struggle. Jesus speaks, the demon leaves. Because Jesus doesn't just have the authority to instruct. He also has the authority to command. When he tells the demon to leave that man, the demon must obey. The demon who had control over this man's life had to bow his knee to the king of kings and the lord of lords. And the people are amazed. They recognize that what Jesus is doing is different. But, but notice what they're primarily amazed by. What, what they talk about first. It's not Jesus' actions. It's not they casted out a demon. They're amazed by his teaching. By his teaching. What Jesus had to say. And, and he validates what he teaches by what he does. And, and the people are astonished. What about you? What, who do you listen to? When, when Jesus speaks, he's not just giving another perspective. He speaks with authority. He commands the attention of crowds and demons. Are you listening to Jesus this morning? Or do you mirror the retort of the devil? What do you have to do with us? Here you can see the responsibility of a faithful preacher of God's word. My job up here is to speak with authority. But this authority doesn't come from myself. If, if I ever come up on one of these Sunday mornings and, and I say something effective, you, you've heard it said this, but truly, truly, John Lee tells you otherwise. Fire me. Fire me. I remember fighting with my sister growing up and arguing about the most petty stuff. Give me my toy, or, or it's my turn to use the computer. And as a younger sibling, my sister just kind of brushed me off. She would just ignore me. My words didn't carry much weight. But if I went to my mom, and my mom told me to tell my sister to get off the computer, oh yeah, <laughs> my words carried some weight. And, and what I said didn't necessarily change. But the source of my words did. My words came from a greater authority. It's the same way for a preacher. Every preacher's authority must come from a greater authority. We believe that this book is God's Word. And my job as a pastor isn't to bring new teaching, but clear teaching from whatever this book has to say. My authority starts and stops wherever this book does. And that's what we should seek. True, authoritative words. 
Not interesting words, not entertaining words, but true words. And listen to God speak. Hughes Oliphant Old was a theologian and academic in the 20th century who, who analyzed pretty much every single significant preacher in the 20th century. And here's the way that he describes one of those teachers. Why do so many people listen to this man, this product of all the wrong schools? How can you pack out a church on Sunday morning in an age in which church attendance is seriously lagged? Here is a preacher who has nothing in the way of a winning personality, good looks, or charm. Here's a preacher who offers us nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No one would suggest that he is a master of the art of oratory. What he seems to have is a witness to true authority. He recognizes in Scripture the Word of God. And when he preaches, it is Scripture that one hears. It's not that the words of this man are so interesting as it is that the Word of God is of surpassing interest. That is why one listens. Pray all of us find Jesus of surpassing interest and incline our ear to Him. Because when Jesus comes, He doesn't just bring that new authority. With that new authority comes a new condition. That's point number two. A new condition. Let's look at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went to Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever. And he told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. He just enters into Simon and Andrew's house, finds out that Simon's mom is sick. Jesus goes to her, takes her hand, and she's healed. Jesus goes from casting out demons to caring for a mother. And, and her healing was comprehensive and immediate. That's a good parallel for us in terms of what happens to us when we come to faith. It's not that we do anything to earn the approval of Jesus. Often we're, we're lying in bed incapable of doing anything ourselves. We're bedridden in our sins and failures. And Jesus comes and he takes us by the hand. And he raises us up. And we respond by serving him. He makes us new. If you notice here, the, the fruit of this woman being saved by Jesus is her service. It's her service. The, the response of Simon's mother to her healing is caring for her Savior. It's the same for us as well. So many of us have shown faithfulness to the Lord. It's been an absolute joy for me to continue to get to know you. Whether it's helping around in the church, or caring for other church members, or, or seeking to minister to your coworkers, your family, and your friends. We know that service to Christ isn't just for those of us who have jobs in the ministry, but it's for everyone. And it's a result of Christ's work in us. And once Jesus heals Simon's mom, the whole community hears, and they all come to him. Look at, look at what happens in verse 32. When evening came after the sun set, they, they brought to him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak 
because they knew him. Once the sun sets, the Sabbath ends. People are freed from their rest. They're able to actually go out and and do things now. And they rush to Jesus. And Simon's mom's home turns into an urgent care facility. They bring their sick and demon-possessed, and Jesus heals them. Think about what that means. The, The pain and sorrow that came from the fall. The oppression from evil rulers of this world. And Jesus comes, and he brings something new. When Jesus arrives, sickness leaves, and demons flee. Jesus is initiating here a new rule, a new creation. The the kingdom of heaven is invading the earth. And for people in this community, that announcement is good news. It's good news. And after his long evening comes an unexpected morning. That's point number three, a new priority. A new priority. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Jesus had a long night. A lot of people came to him. And he gets up the next morning early to pray. As he begins his ministry, Jesus prioritizes prayer. Here we see the Son himself taking time to pray to his Father. And and he's not praying just so that he could get some spiritual juice to be able to do his work. He's not praying with the expectation that God is somehow reorienting his plans around Jesus' wants. Jesus spends time in prayer because it flows out of the fellowship that he has with his Father. Jesus prioritizes spending time with God. There's no complacency in Jesus. Jesus isn't satisfied with a long evening of productive ministry, like I earned the right to sleep in a little bit. Instead, he sees prayer as something worth giving up his rest and his work. Do you pray? Do you have the same priorities that Jesus does? When we, when we don't, when we don't pray, it's a sign of our pride. Prayerlessness is a symptom of self-reliance. Spurgeon says this. He says, Jesus was up at the sacred work of prayer. The more work we have to do with people for God, the longer we ought to be at work with God for them. If we plead with people, we cannot hope to prevail unless we first plead with God. If Jesus prepares for his work in prayer, so can we. Whatever your to-do list for the week looks like, I guarantee you that Jesus' was probably more important. Yet he still takes time to pray. To turn towards his Father in heaven. So let me encourage you, face God before you face your phone. Face God before you face others. Face God before you face your trials. First Baptist, let's be a church that's known for our prayer, where we aren't bored talking to our living God. I, I love that Jeanette hosts bi-monthly prayer meetings 
We can spend time together and pray together. I love that. Did you know that this church had Sunday evening prayer services every single week from the moment it planted in 1948 until 2001? I love that. I love that this church has a history of prioritizing prayer. And let's be a church that continues to do that. Let's be a church that's known for our prayer, that takes time to be with God as much as we talk about Him. Prayerlessness is functional atheism. But when we pray, when we take time to be with the Lord, we prioritize the same things that Jesus prioritizes. But the disciples don't get it. You can see that in verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. The disciples find Jesus. They tell him, everyone's looking for you. But Jesus doesn't go back. I'm sure that the village had more needs than form Jesus about. I'm sure that the village was also probably eager to show their appreciation for all the work that Jesus had done. But Jesus chooses to move on. And notice what Jesus says he needs to do in those neighboring villages. Jesus doesn't say that he needs to go and cast out more demons. He doesn't say that he needs to go there to heal more of the sick. He says that he needs to go to those neighboring villages so that he can preach there. Jesus looks beyond the immediate problems of their day. Some of us avoid looking at our calendars because you get stressed. Grocery lists, relationships that you need to clean up, chores, honeydews, responsibilities at work. And sometimes the temptation when we feel overwhelmed with all the things that we need to do is to think we need to ramp up our productivity. I need to figure out a way to get things done, to organize all of our tasks, to to be capable enough to juggle everything, to, to handle it ourselves, to just go and fix it. But where we would likely try to prioritize our productivity and our output, Jesus prioritizes prayer. He prioritizes preaching. Is Jesus apathetic to the plight of these people? I don't think so. I think Jesus cares for the sick. You can see his tender touch to Simon's mother. I think he cares for the demon-possessed when he rebukes the demon. Jesus cares for the sick, the demon-possessed, all suffering in the world. But I think that Jesus' perspective enables him to see a deeper need than the temporary earthly sufferings that we endure. Jesus cares about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. And saving other people from that requires prayer and preaching. After all, everyone who was healed in Capernaum got sick again. Those freed from bondage to demons still sunk to the grave. We need a solution 
That's deeper than that. It's more effective. Something that gives us hope beyond this life's worries and troubles. And Jesus comes to fix our eternal problem. So he holds on to his priorities. And we ought to recalibrate ours. When we gather on Sundays, when you come into this building and and when we sing praises to God, when we pray to him, when we spend time in his word, what we're doing is we are realigning our hearts to what God prioritizes. We're, We're refocusing our minds, reminding ourselves of what's really true, what's really important. We're tuning our hearts to sing his grace. We have hope to pray. We have hope to remain faithful because we know that Jesus prioritizes our deepest need. And he, and he proves that he will in our last point here for us this morning. A new hope. A new hope. Verse 39. He went to all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus travels through Galilee, teaching and driving out demons, and a man with leprosy comes to Jesus. We don't see lepers in our society today, but leprosy back then was a big deal. It's a skin disease that's contagious and incurable. Even a touch from a leper can result in you being infected. Severe leprosy would result in even limbs from your own body just falling off as your body decayed. It's it's so serious that in Leviticus 13, Moses instructs Israel to exile any leper out of the camp and live alone to starve and die so that they can't spread their disease to any other Israelite. Leprosy was essentially a death warrant. You'd live until you literally fell apart. It was so dismal that the lepers that lived outside the camp in exile were considered the living dead. And no amount of of manifesting, positive thinking, or self-help could heal this disease. If you had leprosy, you were as good as dead. And so this leper comes to Jesus. And he begs him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I love this request. I love this request because the leper trusts Jesus' ability. Goes to Jesus and he knows that Jesus can cleanse him of this disease. He's certain of that. There's not an ounce of doubt in Jesus' ability to heal him. But what this leper is unsure of isn't Jesus' ability, but his goodness. Is Jesus willing to cleanse him of his disease? Would he be willing to care for this outcast in society? If you are willing. You see Jesus' answer in verse 41. Moved with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. Be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus is moved 
with compassion. This, and this idea of being moved isn't just Jesus having sympathy or pity for this leper, but being affected, being deeply moved. That when Jesus sees this leper in his plight, he is motivated from the gut with love and compassion for this man. Jesus' strength and authority is only good news because it's matched by his love and compassion for this leper. He says he is willing. He, and he reaches out and he touches the leper. He touches him. The only case that you see leprosy being healed in the Old Testament is 2 Kings 5 when, when Naaman gets, gets sick with leprosy and Elisha gives him instructions to go wash himself in the Jordan River. And even then, Elisha talked to Naaman, but he didn't dare touch him. But here... Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. Because when the leper comes into contact with the king of kings, Jesus doesn't get infected, but the leper gets made clean. The leper doesn't defile Jesus. Rather, Jesus cleanses the leper. Jesus reverses the curse on this man. But that's not where Jesus stops. He instructs him to do one more thing. You can see that in verse 43. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, and they came to him from everywhere. Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone, but go to the priest and have him do what Moses had commanded them to do. There's no cure for leprosy, but if you, if you had less severe forms of it, there's a chance that you might just suddenly find yourself clean. In Leviticus 14, if someone somehow became clean, they would go to a priest to declare them clean. So, so the priest would come outside the camp to go examine this person. And if they could confirm that they were clean, then, then the priest would provide sacrifices of multiple animals to provide atonement for this man. Another word for atoning would be to, to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of this man's sin. See, for, for Israel, leprosy isn't just a physical condition. It's not just an ailment that you had. It was also a spiritual condition. That, that someone had to be cleansed, not just physically, but ceremonially before God. That, that, that leprosy was indicative of, of their spiritual state as well. And the, and the person that would enact that cleansing would be the priest. The priest would make multiple sacrifices for them, including birds, lambs, other things. It was a very elaborate process his leper to get cleansed. And so Jesus tells this leper, go to the priest and get confirmation that you are clean so that you can re-enter society. And that leper doesn't listen to Jesus. He just does his own thing, right? Do I think that this leper is, is disobeying the Lord? Did he just take Jesus's healing, thank him, and then go on his merry way? I don't think so. I think the question as to whether or not this leper is sinning might actually miss the point 
Mark doesn't include a rebuke for the leper's disobedience. It's clear that Mark doesn't seem to care very much about whether or not what this leper did was right. And I personally don't actually think that the leper was disobeying the Lord at all. I think that he isn't disobeying Jesus because this leper had already met with a priest. See, Moses gives the law, but he can't fix problems, can't heal leprosy. But Jesus doesn't give us a law, he fulfills it. Elisha gives instructions to Naaman, but he couldn't touch the leper. Jesus doesn't need to instruct. He just touches him. And the priest can recognize that cleansing has happened, but but the priest can't cause it. Jesus doesn't react to God's work. He initiates it. See, Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater prophet, and the greater priest. And when Jesus looks at the leper and he says, be made clean, there is no other declaration that's necessary because the Son of God has touched this leper and that means he's saved. The work is finished. We don't need another priest to confirm that because we have a great high priest, one who descended from the heavens. The same is true for us today. You might be sitting here this morning and you feel as dirty as a leper, defiled, shameful, that no one should come near or touch you. And the truth is, if you feel that way, you probably should. We all are dirty, defiled, sinful, exiled from this camp. We are all spiritual lepers destined for eternal death in hell forever because of our sin. But I have good news for you. Jesus is greater than your leprosy. He is powerful enough to do anything. And he loves you enough to care for you and to meet your deepest need. He is both strong and he's kind. And Jesus doesn't just issue his decrees from up above. He descends to the earth and dwells with sinners. He lived the perfect life that you and I never could live. And rather than being beloved and accepted, Jesus exiles himself. He gets cast out of the camp. He hung on a cross and paid the penalty of sin that you and I deserved in full. And three days later, he rose from the grave, putting even death itself under his authority and rule. Because in Jesus, death gets swallowed up by life. Sin swallowed up by grace. Leprosy obliterated by Jesus' cleansing touch. See, Jesus reigns over all creation. Everything will bow its knee to Christ. But rather than using his authority to crush you, he sees you this morning. And when Jesus looks at you and I, he isn't overcome with condemnation, but with compassion. Turn from your sin. Go to this good and gracious king. Tell him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus will always respond, 
I am willing. Be made clean. And when Jesus touches you, you can know with absolute certainty that you are clean. Not because of what you've done, but because of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And the way that we present ourselves as as clean in this life isn't by running into a Jewish temple and, and conducting sacrifices. We present ourselves in the church. We, through baptism and, and membership in a local church, we present ourselves as those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And this man couldn't help but go out and tell everyone what's happened to him. And that's what happens to us as well. We go out and we declare what Jesus has done for us, what he can do for others. Think about those in your life that you think are too far gone. If Jesus can cleanse a leper, he can save them. As we go and we share the gospel and and people come to know him as Jesus touches them, we get to show a picture of the new creation, the kingdom of heaven on earth. All of us who are in Jesus are are glimmers, little, little glimpses of what's to come ahead. A new kingdom, a new creation, that all things will be made new, that everything sad will come untrue. This leper gets healed of his leprosy, but he gets infected by Christ's grace. And he can't help himself. He goes straight into the city where he was unable to enter, and he starts sharing the news with everyone that he can. And this pronouncement of this new kingdom spreads like wildfire. Jesus is so popular that he can't even enter a town without crowds forming. And now, it's not John the Baptist, but Jesus in the wilderness, and people are coming out to him because the king had come. And with this new king comes true hope that he will make everything new. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good work of Jesus. We thank you that he brings in a new kingdom that's better than what the world has to offer today. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to to hope in that, to believe in that this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.